Scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 4, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 17. And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken to my voice, for they will say, Yahweh has not appeared to you. And Yahweh said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A rod. And he said, Cast it to the ground. And he cast it the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from before it. And Yahweh said to Moses, Put forth your hand and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and laid hold of it, and it became a rod in his hand, that they may believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. And Yahweh said to him again, Bring, pray, your hand into your bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom. And he took it out, and behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, Put your hand into your bosom again. And he put his hand into his bosom again, and he took it out of his bosom, and behold, it was turned again as his other flesh. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe you, nor hearken to the voice of the first sign, that they will believe the voice of the latter sign. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe even these two signs, nor hearken to your voice, that you shall take of the water of the river and pour it upon the dry land, and the water that you take out of the river shall become blood upon the dry land. And Moses said to Yahweh, O Lord, no man of words am I, neither yesterday nor before, since you have spoken to your servant, for slow of speech and slow of tongue am I. And Yahweh said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? And now go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. And he said, O Lord, send, pray, by the hand of him who you will send. And the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. And also, behold, he comes forth to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you what you shall do. And he shall be your spokesman to the people. And it shall come to pass that he he shall be to you a mouth and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take in your hand this rod with which you shall do the signs. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word and do pray that you would indeed use your word now as you have promised to direct us in the truth, to cut us and to prepare us to be able sacrifices, to be true sacrifices of Christ our Savior and King. Indeed, Father, we pray that you would direct us now by your spirit in the truth. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When we look around at what is going on in our society today, where do we lay the blame? Whose fault is it that we're in the mess we're in? A particular political party? A particular philosophy? A particular movement in history or at present? How did we get where we are today? Well, that last question has plenty of threads to pull on for sure, and it's probably better discussed in a more conversational setting. 
And while the answer certainly has multiple layers to it and may be complicated in one sense, it can also be traced back to a fundamental principle. In his book, uh, To Be as God, A Study of Modern Thought Since the Marquis de Sade, R.J. Rushduni recounts this. In 1851, William Everett Gladstone, who lived from 1809 to 1898, on a visit to the kingdom of the two Sicilies, saw with horror the rottenness of that realm, its contempt for justice, and its use of torture. He denounced the realm as the negation of God erected into a system of government. Now, more than in Gladstone's day, this phrase characterizes many states. Unhappily, these are not simply backwards states, but the one-time Christian nations of the West. This negation of God begins in the churches with their antinomianism, their humanism, and their open contempt for biblical religion. In November 1995, there was a joint annual meeting of the American Academy of Religion and the Society of Biblical Literature. 8,000 professors of religion, Bible scholars, and Christian theologians met in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to declare feminist, homosexual, and other aberrant views to be acceptable and preferable to Orthodox Christianity. We have today nations and their politicians dedicated to the negation of God with the dedicated assistance of many churchmen and churches. So, to ask the question again, who's to blame? Fundamentally, the answer is the church. Now, you might not like that answer, and I don't particularly like it either, but it, it does ring true in the light of God's revelation in His Word, and even as is demonstrated in our text this morning. Yes, the second part of this is the second part of Moses' commissioning has plenty to say to us today and even acts as a call to repentance in some respects. And I trust that our further exploration of this famous encounter will direct us in the truth and confirm us all the more in our calling as the people of God. Now, you'll remember from last week that Moses' meeting with Yahweh takes place on the mountain of God, on Horeb, and that Moses balks at the idea of, being, of, of going back to Egypt at the age of 80 after Israel's rejection of him 40 years before. And you'll also remember that Yahweh gives Moses his name. That's not really a name, but it does indicate that he's constant, that he, Yahweh, is the covenant keeper. Even his name is a memorial to himself. And what's more, he promises a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that's better than Eden. And while Yahweh, while Yahweh promises success to Moses when speaking with the elders of Israel... He's told that things with Pharaoh aren't going to go as easily. Nevertheless, the Israelites are going to plunder the Egyptians. They're going to leave with their children bedecked in gold, silver, and clothing simply by the women asking for it. And that's where we left off the story last week. And Moses replies in chapter 4 and verse 1, Sign me up. I'm ready to go. No, that's not quite his reaction, is it? Rather, Moses answers and says, But behold, they will not support me, they will not believe me, and they will not listen to my voice. For they will say, Yahweh did not appear to you. Now, Moses is pretty directly contesting what Yahweh stated in chapter 3, verse 18. And we're very quick to call Moses' faith into question and chide him for his disobedience. But Yahweh doesn't do that. And what's interesting is that throughout chapters 3 and 4, Yahweh gives lengthy explanations to Moses. In fact, 
This is the longest calling episode we find in Scripture, which probably indicates it's pretty significant. But the Lord seems to be willing to take his time with Moses and to thoroughly explain what's going to happen. He doesn't simply tell him, get your butt moving because I told you so. And if we're paying attention, the rich theology that comes out of this text, out of this exchange between Moses, the reluctant servant, and Yahweh is rich and meaningful. In verse 2, Yahweh asks, what is that in your hand? And he says, a staff. And then in verse, Yahweh, in verse 3, Yahweh commands, cast it upon the earth, cast it upon the ground. And he cast it upon the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before the face of it. Now, the serpent into which the staff turns could very well have been a cobra, and hence Moses running away from it. You know what happens next in verse 4. But be sure not to overlook that Moses obeys what Yahweh commands him to do. And Yahweh said to Moses, Send out your hand and take it by the tail. And so he sent out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. Now, many of you have likely seen clips of the late Steve Irwin, a.k.a. the crocodile hunter, you know, coming up behind a snake and picking it up by the tail. But is that the, way, the safest way to pick up a snake? No, it's actually not. If you're going to pick up a snake, especially one that's potentially poisonous or is poisonous, you want to hold it behind its head so that it can't bite you. Now, at this point, Moses is 80 years old. And he lived in Egypt where there were snakes, even cobras uh, that are part of the Egyptian symbolism. And he's been shepherding in Midian and around Midian and the wilderness for 40 years and certainly has seen his fair share of snakes there too. So it's not like Moses is a noob when it comes to snakes, especially dangerous ones. And so for him to obey Yahweh's command to pick it up by the tail wasn't a cowardly act because the serpent could strike him. Again, he was being obedient to what God told him to do. Now, the staff to serpent and then back to staff again is interesting to consider and is representative of what has taken place and what will take place. Consider that Moses' staff, this branch of a tree, is a picture of his calling as a shepherd, but also represents Israel and their calling as shepherds, particularly when they entered Egypt and settled in Goshen, as we know from the latter chapters of Genesis when Jacob moves there. So if the staff represents Israel, and even of their calling to shepherd the nations to a degree, then what about the serpent? Well, it's pretty safe conclusion that the serpent represents Satan, who is working through Egypt to attack the seed of the woman, to attack the bride. And another level of meaning to the sequence here, which is not original with me, is that the staff becoming a serpent particularly indicates Israel's failure to continue to shepherd Egypt after the reign of Joseph. Remember, Egypt became Christian after a fashion during Joseph's rule, but that clearly didn't continue because Israel came under oppression and affliction from a later pharaoh. And also we know that Israel succumbed to their idolatry, as we read at the end of Joshua. And don't forget that there was a whole generation in the wilderness that preferred Egypt. And that was a serious problem, and they were killed for it. You see, when the church doesn't do its job, it leads to slavery. It leads to tyranny. Go back to Genesis 3. 
Adam is the priest. He's the head of the church. And he's supposed to serve and guard the garden sanctuary. And does he do that? No, he lets the serpent take over. Similarly, Israel hasn't done its job. And so the serpent rises up and takes over in Egypt and God's people suffer for it. But there's hope here too, isn't there? Yes, because Moses is commanded to take the serpent by the tail and it turns back into the staff. What this may very well picture is what Moses is going to do when, when he goes to Egypt and confronts Pharaoh and calls for him to lead the, uh, the people to go into the wilderness on a three-day journey in order to worship Yahweh. You also remember from last week that this, uh, this was a test for Pharaoh and is really asking the question of who is really God? And to whom do the Israelites really belong? And as we'll read in coming chapters, Moses' efforts makes things worse for the Israelites. The serpent does strike back. You know, he's been grabbed by the tail and he doesn't like it. Now, an important detail in relation to all of his, all, and to all of this is that we need to be sure to notice in verse 5 that the sign is not for Moses, but for the elders of Israel that they may believe, that they may confirm that Yahweh has appeared to you, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This word believed or confirmed um, or supported is the same word used by Moses in verse 1. It's actually just the Hebrew word for amen, at least in the verb form. So this is sign number one that Yahweh gives for the elders of Israel, the staff turning into a serpent and then back into a staff indicative of Israel's repentance and understanding their calling to shepherd. Then in verses 6 and 7, we read about the second sign when Yahweh commands Moses, put your hand into your bosom. And Moses immediately complies. Then when Moses took it out, behold, his hand was leprous as snow. In verse 7, Yahweh commands Moses, put back your hand into your bosom. And Moses does so. And when he took it out from his bosom, behold, it was restored as his flesh. So what's this sign about? Well, a couple of contextual things. Uh, This is the first mention of leprosy in the Bible. Second, leprosy in the Bible is not to be equated with what uh, later became known as Hansen's disease, which um, can cause limbs to fall off and that kind of thing. Rather, leprosy in the Bible uh, is probably something more like eczema or psoriasis, uh, but we can't be absolutely sure about it. The comparison to snow may be because it was white or it could be simply because it was flaky. But also we should bear in mind that leprosy wasn't contagious. Yes, you were unclean if you had it or came into contact with someone or something that had it, but that was temporary. Of course, to be unclean meant that you didn't have access to the tabernacle or temple, and that could be significant. But unless it was a perpetual condition for some reason, it was usually fairly simple to deal with. So what should we make of this second sign to the elders? Well, as one theologian posits, what's pictured here in the leprous hand being placed in the bosom inside Moses' cloak, which is near his heart, represents a leprous heart that needs cleansing. So the sign to Israel is that they're leprous, they're unclean, and need to deal with their sin. Their hearts need to be cleansed first. Then they'll be more effective. You know, by way of reminder, what does the hand symbolize in Scripture? Power. You, know, you, you use your hand to do things. And so before Israel can be effective in exercising their power, 
They need their hearts cleansed first. Put another way, dealing with the political problem, the ecclesiastical problem has to be dealt with first. You can't change the external until you change the internal. When great sins are broken, great, great benefits come about as a result. So that's, that seems to be the picture here. A sign to Israel that the whole nation needs cleansing. And the immediate application of the church today is pretty evident, isn't it? Until the church repents, until she takes care of her internal problems first, then we're not going to see any changes on a societal or political level. Now, what do we read in Second Chronicles 7? And I know there's, there's more context here, but the principle applies. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. The, the repentance of God's people is the first order of business. In verses 8 and 9, we're told about a possible third sign. And it will be if they do not confirm, if they, if they do not believe uh, to you, or hearken to the voice of the first sign, they may believe the voice of the one coming after. And it shall be if they do not confirm or believe even two of these signs or hearken to your voice, you shall take water from the river and pour it upon the dry ground, and it shall be, and shall be the water which you shall take from the river, and it will become blood upon the dry ground. And notice a couple of things here. First, how the word and sign, the word and sacrament, go together. You don't have a bare word or a bare sign. They go hand in hand. Also, Yahweh seems to confirm here, at least to a degree, the concern Moses raised in verse 1, that the elders of Israel would not confirm, would not believe him. Even after what Moses tells them and shows them, there's the possibility they won't believe, and so the third sign is given. Well, what does that sign symbolize? Well, the plagues the Lord would level against Egypt. You know, if you know anything about Egypt, you know how important the Nile River was and is, and that it was viewed as the source of life. Even It even had godlike status in their thinking. But, you know, the Nile would flood, uh, the delta creating the fer fertile soil for growing crops, and it was a source for other means of living and food. It was central to their agriculture and their entire way of life. Well, this particular sign is a hint that the coming war of the gods that's going to take place, and that the... the the first plague against Egypt is what? Well, turning the Nile River, turning the water into blood. Interestingly enough, the word for dry land that's uh, used here is used later in Exodus to describe the ground of the Red Sea in Exodus 14 and 15, on which Israel crossed. It was dry, arid land. And of course, Pharaoh and his army will be wiped out there. So Yahweh gives his third sign for Moses to give to the elders of Israel which is a sign of victory over Egypt, over the Nile, the very river into which Hebrew baby boys were cast in order to be killed. So there are these multiple layers of meaning and symbolism here. And through the repetition of the action that Moses to take, that Yahweh commands, the, the doubling of the language, it, it, draw, it draws more attention to this third sign. Well, that brings us then to verses 10 to 17, where Moses responds, and really what constitutes two protests on his part the first of which we find in verses 10 to 12. Now, what's Moses' argument to Yahweh here? Oh, my Lord, my, my master, not a man of words am I, neither before nor after, or since you have spoken to your servant, 
for heavy of mouth and heavy of tongue am I. So Moses is saying, I, you know, I've never been eloquent. I never will be. And I haven't become eloquent during the course of this conversation. That, that's basically what he's saying. That Moses says he is heavy of mouth and heavy of tongue may very well indicate some type of real speech impediment and might even rightly remind us of what we read about in regards to the Apostle Paul. But what is Yahweh's reply? Who has set in place, who has appointed the mouth for man? Or who has appointed dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? And Yahweh is saying that ultimately all these conditions are determined, constituted, ordained by him. So in verse 12, he commands Moses, And now go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will direct you what to speak. There's another hint here to the Emmanuel theology that we heard in chapter chapter 3, isn't there? That Yahweh will be with Moses. But then in verse 13, Moses basically admits that he doesn't want to do it. And the literal wording is a bit tricky, but he uses the imperative. My Lord, send, I pray, in hand whom you send. Just anybody else but me. And the basic reason we know that Moses is trying to get out of going is, well, Yahweh's anger is kindled against him by what he says here. And be sure to note that it's at this point in the story, and not before, that this flat refusal raises Yahweh's ire. But he still sets forth a rather lengthy explanation about what he's going to do and how he answers Moses' evasions. And what's the answer? Well, Moses' brother Aaron, the Levite. Now, the definite article is there and why the text bothers to tell us this information uh, is interesting to think about since we already know that Aaron would be a Levite because Moses was a Levite and so forth and so on. Well, by referring to Aaron as the Levite, uh, may very well indicate that he's the next high priest. In fact, which seems uh, later on, which never seems contested in the book of Exodus. But Aaron can speak well, and providentially he's on his way to meet Moses, and when he sees Moses, he will be glad in his heart. Perhaps this tells us something about the people being more ready for deliverance than they were 40 years before. And I don't think we're supposed to read this simply as gladness for a family reunion. Uh, and it certainly seems that Aaron knows where Moses is living and working, etc. And Yahweh sets it up that Aaron can act as Moses' spokesman, and Moses will set words or appoint words in Aaron's mouth. And Yahweh promises to be with Moses' mouth and Aaron's mouth, and will will direct them, will teach them, will instruct them in what they are to do. Verse 16, And he shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be for you a mouth, and you shall be to him as God. As Yahweh is to Moses, so Moses to Aaron. That's the, the gist here in verse 16. But notice in this particular section, verses 10 to 16, the emphasis upon God's words and the importance of them. The Hebrew word for word is debar, and then one of the words for speak is the verbal form of this same word. So if you were listening to this section in Hebrew, you'd hear the various forms for debar some seven times in verses 10 to 16. But also notice that the, that the addition of Aaron means what? That there's a second witness since testimony is established by two to three witnesses. 
And then finally in verse 17, Yahweh basically reminds Moses, this staff you shall take in your hand, which you shall do with it, the signs. Now a point that, that underlies our text this morning, which leads us into considering what further principles we should meditate upon, is that the need for signs, for sacraments, if you will, is not a bad thing. That it doesn't automatically denote some type of deficiency of faith or human weakness. Rather, the Lord's giving of signs to Moses for the elders, and even the Lord's giving us baptism and the Lord's Supper, are part and parcel with how we are made, how God relates to and interacts with His people. We are created beings, and we live in a good world that God has made, and we see and touch and taste and smell and hear. And the signs that God gives to His people reflect that He's made us this way. There can be a tendency, I think, especially in Reformed Protestant circles, to think that the the sheer word alone is enough. And we can understand that to a certain degree because of superstitions and abuses, etc. But an overemphasis upon word only can almost result in a form of Gnosticism or even Platonism where God's communication with His people ends up in the realm of ideas only, that it's just kind of strictly cerebral. But that's not how we see God interacting with His people again and again. And when we stop and consider the fact that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, took on flesh. He was incarnate. What affirms that we are created beings who are not strictly spiritual. Put another way, the incarnation is an affirmation of the goodness of creation, that Christ came to redeem us completely, and that we can look to resurrected bodies at His second coming. But consider in relation to Jesus' ministry, especially as a central theme and structure to John's gospel, are the signs that Jesus performed. The first is the changing of the water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. The second is healing the official's son. And so John wants you to count the signs as you go. The raising of Lazarus is number six. The crucifixion is number seven. And the resurrection is number eight. So central to Jesus' own ministry are the signs that he performed and that accompanied his teaching and preaching. Still more, there's a Trinitarian pattern to the sequence that we find here in Exodus 4 when we consider that God communicates to his people through person, word, and sign. We think of word and sacrament and a right to do so, but how are those communicated to us? Through a person. Yahweh is sending Moses and Aaron to the elders of Israel and to Pharaoh who will communicate God's word and show the signs. What does Paul say are gifts to the church from Christ in Ephesians 4? People, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Or as Paul mentions in Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him, call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So let's think of it this way. The person corresponds to the Father. The Word corresponds to the Son, the Word. And the sign corresponds to the Holy Spirit. Now we have two signs, two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And those are God's uh, gifts to us. They They are indicators of his favor. They're good things. And while baptism takes place once and is less frequent, 
we have the Lord's table each and every week. So, let me ask it this way. Is weekly communion a sign of weakness? Should we do it less often to show that we're really tough and don't really need it? No, that that would be foolish. And I'd be willing to bet that congregations that celebrate the Lord's Supper infrequently, whether quarterly or even just yearly, end up with a host of problems that they wouldn't otherwise have if they were partaking of God's signs specifically given to them to further strengthen their faith. The signs that the Lord has given to us are a good thing. He made us. He knows what our faith needs. A second point to consider from this text is that the Bible is not anti-technology. Rather, it is pro-technology. Now, maybe you think, where does that come from? Well, in the fact that Moses is using a staff for his shepherding duties. The staff represents technology, even if it is a very basic form of technology. Now, this doesn't mean that technology can't be abused, because it can. Uh, even if we go back to the early chapters of Genesis, we see that the, the, that the line of Cain uh, seems to make technological advances more quickly, even in the forging of instruments, tools, etc. But that didn't make them inherently wrong. Now, when you stop and think about it, God made technology a necessary part of the covenant with Abraham when he required circumcision. You have to have some type of tool to perform that procedure, whether a knife made of metal or stone. Furthermore, we should understand technology as an extension of power, as an extension of what we can accomplish with our hands. Again, there can be abuses and there can be consequences, whether intended or not, in relation to technology. But by and large, technology is a reflection of our taking dominion over the earth, even as acting as sub-creators as those made in the image of God, who form and fill the earth. And what's more, whatever the pagans come up with, whatever riches they might accumulate, eventually they belong to the righteous and we can use these things righteously. A third and finally, in light of what we read here in Exodus 4, we must recognize that the church in America has failed and that it has led to some dire consequences. Again, Rush Dooney. The negation of the triune God is thus more than an ecclesiastical concern because it follows from such a negation that life itself is rejected. The culture that pursues such a course is suicidal. We thus live in an era when the church and state, the school, academy, the arts, sciences, and more are engaged in a suicidal course of action. The general unconcern is an aspect of the will to death. This book was published in 2003, 20 years ago, and his words are proving prophetic. See, on account of the church's failure, the the serpent has risen up, and we see a renewed attack against whom? (laughs) Women and children, even men. And the church has been duplicitous in not standing firm upon God's word and in obedience to the scriptures, but but, but caving to cultural pressures or mores. Well, what's the way forward then? Well, simply put, repentance. Easier said than done in some respects, I suppose. And there are certain sectors of the professing church that don't think there's anything to be repented of, but they're gravely mistaken. But maybe even saying it that way seems too far out there. So what can we as St. Mark Reformed Church do? 
Well, still, repentance is the order of the day. We examine our own hearts, test ourselves, and repent of our own sins and, re- and move forward in renewed obedience. Now, think about this. This, is, uh, this struck me um, in preparing for this morning. Now, after Paul's glorious portrayal of Christ's humiliation and exaltation in Philippians 2, what's the next thing he tells them? Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's an implicit call to maturity and responsibility. It's a call to obedience. To pursue the life to which we've been saved to live as directed by the word of God. The second, let us also be more urgent in our prayers, not only together corporately, whether here on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday evenings, but also in our families or individually, praying for the repentance and reformation of the church. Again, go back to the sequence we find in 2 Chronicles 7. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. We mustn't forget the importance and centrality of prayer and praying expectantly. God has brought renewal to his repentant people in the past and we should fully believe that he will do so again. Remember, the serpent was turned back into a staff. The leper's hand was healed and the water was transformed into blood even as Christ has dealt the death blow to Satan and his army. And as the Father sent the Son, so the Father and Son have sent the Spirit who testifies to the Word of God, to His work and ministry, and what has been accomplished in His death and resurrection, even through the signs that have been given to us in baptism, in bread, and in wine. And so let us go forth as those who have received a commission in obedience to Jesus Christ, our Good Shepherd and King. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that you would indeed impress your word evermore upon our hearts and lives, that we would hear your words of warning, and that where we need to repent, we would repent. And Father, we also thank you for the grace and favor and encouragement that you have given to us in the very signs that you have granted to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we find greater courage for the life of faith and obedience to which you've called us through these signs. Indeed, may your spirit continue to help us and direct us and strengthen us. For we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.